Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Vincenzo Media podcast about everything in print. This is Stuart. And this is Arnie, and we are here discussing... Catching the Big Fish by David Lynch. We're doing a big David Lynch review over at NowPlayingPodcast.com leading up to what I know both Stuart and I are excited about. Season 3 of Twin Peaks on Showtime starting really soon. And so, Stuart, you put on the schedule that you wanted to review this for Books and Nachos and strangely, I'd already read it. Yeah, I definitely felt like I had to cover this one. I have very distinct memories about this book coming out. I was living in Los Angeles. The year was 2007, turning into 2008. And Barnes & Noble, yes, they were still in business. And they were advertising that you could meet David Lynch and buy his new book. This was my opportunity to actually stand in front of the guy for 25 seconds and say anything that I wanted to. And man, I racked my brain. What do you do? You got 25 seconds to talk to one of your heroes. What are you going to say? Are you going to be cool and be like, I really love your work and say nothing? Or or what were you going to do? And I do this a lot. You know, I go to a lot of signings and autograph opportunities. I understand completely what you mean. And I did clam up when I met George Lucas. I just stammered. I couldn't get anything out. Yeah, no, it's a tough one. Lynch has always been highly influential on me, and I, I wanted to say something. I was not going to n- let the moment pass without saying that something that I felt. And Inland Empire had just come out, his last feature film. And I had seen it, and not to spoil that review, I had not been that enamored with it. And I really felt like... I wanted to point a direction that he could look at. And so... So you went in wanting to be his life coach. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be that presumptuous, but I felt like he needed to hear what I had to say. So I said, (laughs) David, you should do more TV. It's ready for you now, which is about the length of time it took him to scrawl David Lynch onto the title page. If I had taken an urn of coffee and thrown it in his face, (laughs) I think I would have gotten the reaction that I got. He grimaced and he shook his head and he said, thank you very much and handed me the book and I was gone. But uh, I could tell he did not want to hear that. However, I would like to point out the next project that David Lynch would film... Twin Peaks Season 3. I was right. TV was ready for David Lynch. He did need to go back to this. I thought it was really important. So you can thank me. It's because of me and my bravery in that moment that he decided to make (laughs) that third season for Showtime. So you're welcome. It took him 10 years for that advice to finally sink in. And I (laughs) think, you know, he sat on it for a long time. I know he was thinking about me every day going, you know, that Stuart, he's got a point. When he was doing his weather reports every day on the internet, he'd wake up in the morning, (laughs) he'd meditate his transcendental meditation, he'd think about what you told him, and then he'd do a weather report. Yeah. Honestly, I think a lot of that wasn't a reaction to some presumptuous kid trying to tell him what to do, but I think just pain. 
for him, working with TV studios had been so painful. He really was at a moment in his career at that time where he had total power. He was doing most of his content for DavidLynch.com, and he just, I don't think he ever thought about going back and having to answer to TV executives again. He just didn't want to do that. And so a lot of what he was making at this time, this book included, was self-created. It was self-promoted to actually promote Inland Empire, which he took mostly foreign money to make. He stood on a median in a busy freeway of Los Angeles with a cow and just sat there with sunglasses and a cow to promote the book. I remember that. I actually remember talking to you around the time when you were going to go get the autograph too. Yeah, no, all of this was happening at the same time. This book was seen somewhat as a promotion, I thought, for the film. What I didn't know it was promoting and what I didn't know about David Lynch at all at this time was how big into transcendental meditation he was. I think I had known that tangentially. I had heard some story about he meditates and that there was a foundation in his name to help sell that technique to larger audiences. But this book, I actually feel like if there is a point to it, more than it is a artistic manifesto, I definitely feel like it is a promotional tool to put forward the David Lynch Foundation and TM. Absolutely. My feeling walking away is, I just read basically Lynch's version of Dianetics, and it was disguised as an autobiography because people want me to talk about my films. Maybe they'll think I'll explain Eraserhead, but I'm going to use it all about transcendental meditation. That's my David Lynch impression. Eh, not bad. I got it. And I don't think you're totally wrong. Well, here's what I would say. David Lynch is pretty private as a person. And if you wanted to pick up this book because you wanted to know more about his life specifically, his trials, his pain, what he's been through, the love affairs, that juice is intentionally not here. This is autobiographical, but he frames those moments in tiny little chapters, I think there's 82 little vignettes, none more than a page long, in which he just uses moments from his life to elucidate how he channels creativity. So he's not going to tell you how you can be David Lynch, and he's not going to tell you how he became David Lynch, but he is going to advocate pretty loudly that the way to rid yourself of stress and yet keep your edge as an artist is TM. More than doing therapy or anything else that you could do for yourself, religion, none of that is going to be as impactful as if you learn to expand your consciousness with transcendental meditation. Arnie, I gotta ask, you ever tried meditating? Do you ever shown any interest in this? I have meditated. I've never taken training for meditation. I'm honestly more interested in it after reading this book. If this book is a sales tool to sell transcendental meditation, I have in the time since reading this looked up a place here in Springfield that offers it. It is a national course, so no matter where you go, you pay the same thousand dollars to learn how to meditate. And I would really need some meditation and calming after I pay a thousand dollars for it. But I'm intrigued enough that I'm still, I haven't ruled it out. Have you done it? I know people that have done it, specifically through the David Lynch Foundation. And then I've seen the promotional materials that ran during this festival of disruption. Lynch had a music festival for two days last year. I attended that. And to my surprise, it was a fundraiser. It was meant to raise money 
for TM and for his foundation. And they promoted all the good that they do, that they go into populations that are at high risk for stress, school kids in bad neighborhoods or war veterans or battered women shelters. They go in there and they teach them techniques through transcendental meditation that appear, at least when you look at this footage, to have some real measurable results. And so I feel good about that. I mean, it doesn't feel cultish when I look at it from that point. What I don't like is that if, yes, you and I would like to learn those same techniques, they want to charge you a premium rate. And I can tell you this, what you are paying for is the mantra. The dollar amount is specifically tied to the word that you are going to be saying to yourself to get you into that state. And honestly, from what I've heard from people that are jaded about paying that money, is that you can create your own word. That the value of that word is not worth it. You can teach yourself to meditate. You don't need to spend that money. Now, if you like the idea of charity and giving that money to the foundation, go for it. Have at it. But it doesn't cost that amount to learn what you're going to learn. Yeah, the page I went to had Hugh Jackman at the top discussing the benefits of Transcendental Meditation, but there's somebody who offers other meditation classes that are not part of the Transcendental Meditation franchise. Yeah, not David Lynch Foundation. That are 10 bucks a class. So I think I'm actually going to try that really soon. And I endorse that. I have taken classes like that. I was fortunate enough to work a job where they actually, that was an extracurricular thing they offered to employees and I took them up for it. You know what I found out? I don't like sitting still. <laughs> the basic problem for me is having to sit still was really hard. When you're trying to focus on not moving, you realize how much you move, even if it's just little increments, but toes, knees, restless leg syndrome. I don't know what I have. I just don't like the idea of being that immobile. It feels very, very stifling. And so I kind of rebelled from that vantage point. But I do like the idea of it. And I do love the idea that David Lynch is trying to promote something that has worked for him. Something that is, I think, very clear and genuine in all of these stories is David Lynch believes this. Whether you will be convinced at the end of it or not, David Lynch does believe that transcendental meditation will expand your consciousness. And the other thing is, it's not like he feels like you have to promote consciousness expansion as a way of understanding him. You know, I think because he makes these crazy movies that a lot of times confound people, he could come off very much as a person in a pretentious way saying, well, you're just not enlightened. You don't know what I know, and thus you have to do this in order to understand what I'm doing and, and saying in my films. Quite the opposite. I feel like the David Lynch that is writing these passages is very unpretentious. Whatever you think about his art, I do feel like he is very open to the idea of letting the experience speak for itself and not to try and follow or create meaning. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Nothing he's ever said in interviews and what I've read about his creative process has ever come across like I'm smarter than you and you just don't get me. Right. I kind of put that on Kubrick, but I don't put that on Lynch. And the whole reason I read this is because I was trying to understand him. I started reading this back when we were working on the book, and I picked his movie Lost Highway for our underrated movies we recommend book. And then when we decided to do a Lynch series, I'm like, okay, I want to hear what he has to say about his own work. And I expected more of that. 
But from what I've learned over the time with his process is it is very fluid. It's not quite make it up as it go along, but kind of is. Spontaneous. I feel that's how he did this book. He wrote this book saying, I'm going to talk a lot about transcendental meditation, and I'm going to talk some stuff about my movies and making them in the place I was in, and I'll put a little bit about my life. These chapters, if you can call them that, are one to two pages in length, and they're just anecdotes, and they flow well together, but yet it doesn't necessarily make a logical sense why he's talking about meditation on this page and the next page he's got a couple paragraphs about Inland Empire. Yeah, it's not a chronological, let me walk you through my life. Some of it is. I mean, in talking about his movies, I think they're more or less discussed chronologically, but interspersed with a lot of metaphor. It should be said the title, what he's referring to with the whole fishing metaphor, is the comparison is... We have inside of us an ocean, that our consciousness is this ocean, and that ideas are fish. Superficial ones, small ideas, they live on the surface. If you want to get the big fish, if you're catching those big fish, you got to dive deep within. And TM, Transcendental Meditation, is the way that you dive into your consciousness. It's important to expand your consciousness, not because it's going to make you better or smarter, but it's just going to allow you to take in more. That if you don't work on expanding your consciousness, you're going to have a golf ball sized way of looking at the universe. You want to have as total a picture as possible. And that's what he works on. That's what he tries to do. And he ascribes that for any artist, particularly that wants to be able to talk about the world, you want to have a wide view. You don't want it to come from a narrow, uninformed vantage point. I like that thought. I mean, like I said, it worked in that regard of he's talking about the unified field and the catching the big fish is his metaphor for where great ideas are. And the unified field is the lake where you go fishing and the fish is the idea. And he talks about how in meditation he comes up with ideas for his movies. It was during meditation that he figured out a way to fix Mulholland Drive from a TV pilot that nobody wanted to a movie that garnered major acclaim. Many people that work with him talk about that his weirdness feels spiritual, that unlike a lot of directors that just throw crazy shit on the screen, that it comes from an honest place. And I noticed some of his metaphors when he talks about enlightenment and meditating and getting to that unified field, he talks about rooms full of curtains, curtains that are blue and red. And I think, yeah, that makes sense that the places where you feel like you've reached that inner peace or inner state are exactly the weird moments in your universes, like the Red Room, where they don't seem to exist in our reality. This is his way of presenting a view of heaven, or at least a wider consciousness. And you mentioned Kubrick. He does have a, an anecdotal story about how Kubrick was a fan of Eraserhead. He mentions Fellini. It's kind of nice to hear him shout out people that he feels a debt to. Again, I get a real strong sense of a, a very likable, folksy guy. I was really surprised to know that he advocates test screenings. He actually likes the idea of showing people his work so that he can make it better when it's not working. He doesn't strike you on the outside as someone that thinks about other people and what they might understand, but it actually, for him, is part of the process. 
Yeah, he has varying views that are different than what I hear a lot of auteurs discussing. He also talks about the benefit of home watching in this book and not having the theater experience. And yeah, no commentary track. No, never a commentary track. And his love of digital. I didn't realize how old this book was. I honestly thought it came out much more recent until you told your story. But then he was on the cutting edge of adopting digital video, which explains some of the technology he described. I'm like, that's kind of low tech, but the stuff he was using back then cost a fortune and now you carry it on your phone. But it's refreshing just to see a difference, whether you like film or you don't care if it's film or digital, to at least have an art filmmaker expressing a love of digital is something refreshing to have that alternate viewpoint. Again, we will we will take that up. It sounds right on the page, and then when you watch it in practice, when you go look at that cruddy-looking stuff in Inland Empire, I find myself pining for him having those masterful film shots. I definitely feel like he is not the filmmaker he was, when he works in the medium. But who's to say? I mean, hopefully for the new season of Twin Peaks, I won't have a problem with the DV. Yeah, well, Inland Empire started out as a web series, so... Yeah, well, I, yeah. That's at least what he says in the book. Yeah, we'll talk about it. That one is... Hmm. At any rate, I, that's my real concluding thought on this, is that what he's trying to say here is... You can expand your creativity no matter who you are, that it eliminates stress. It does not eliminate conflict. If you want to be an edgy person that has dark views and deals with this kind of crazy subject matter that Lynch tends to do with sexual depravity and deformity and all the stuff that he traffics in, you would think normally someone that puts that out there is filled with demons. Lynch is saying, no, 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 no. I don't have stress. I have plenty of conflict in my life. I just don't stress out about it. And the reason why that is, is because I do TM. And because I do TM, I can look at things and be more creative. It allows me to respond more spontaneously. I like that as a notion, but I gotta say, is that true? His output hasn't increased. I don't feel like he is putting out a lot more content because he's so much more creative now that he's worked for the past 40 years on expanding his consciousness and his creative side. I mean, he hasn't made a movie in a decade. Yes, but he did start this back when he was making Eraserhead. So you can say it didn't help him because he hasn't done anything for 10 years, but the same token... He did quite a bit of original stuff in the 30 years from when he started meditating to when Inland Empire came out. He's not young. Allow a man of time to retire and meditate because he wants to. Well, yeah. And again, he has remained creative in other ways. He's still put out painting. And what I want from Lynch is TV and movies. And what Lynch has been doing, partly because he's rejected the Hollywood movie-making, TV-making establishment is to do his own thing with web shorts and all that other stuff. Stuff that I'm not as into as his great movies and TV series. One of the segments I really liked is when he talks about the art life. And I think about this one a lot because I, through the shows I do and through you, Stuart, and just various things, I know a lot of people who live in Hollywood and work in entertainment. And I don't understand them because 
They just move from job to job. They get fired. A project gets shut down. Their show gets canceled. They have no work. And it's like, how do you deal with this? And in his section about the art life, it really kind of crystallized that that's what it is, is you choose to live a lifestyle of art. And his art was painting, not film. And he... We discussed this back with the Eraserhead review we did for NowPlayingPodcast.com that it started with moving paintings, and that's how he kind of got into film. And I think he makes film, he loves film, but his heart is a painter, and I think that's where he's getting his bliss. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And as far as what I think of him as an author, well, this makes a nice coffee table book. It's chicken soup for the goth soul. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I know I, I did not buy a David Lynch coffee table, nor am I drinking David Lynch brand coffee when I flip through these pages. There is a commercial aspect. I recognize that in some ways this is just a pamphlet for please join us at the David Lynch Foundation and pay the thousands of dollars. I don't know if I believe his claims that inner city schools where there was constant violence, the principal started the meditating and now there's no violence at all and they're all really happy. I'd, I may buy into it enough for me to try meditating. I don't buy into it enough to believe that all inner city schools should start meditating as a way to stop violence. Well, I have seen the testimonials. They did play a lot of those, and it does seem to have some results. I mean, the, there's footage there where we saw kids that have been through incredible trauma, and they talk about how they use it. I think it does work for some people, and I wouldn't dissuade anyone's interest in it. I just personally, I'm not willing to spend more money to experience Transcendental Meditation the David Lynch way, but I did like having this purview into his creative process. This feels authentic. It is not an autobiography. He does not really let us in too close to his life, only to his method of making his art. And while I might have appreciated more confessions here, a little bit more juice, a little bit more dirt, I feel like this is better than the commercial. It's maybe not quite an autobiography, but it's worth a read. I read this book on paper, but I then went and got the audiobook, and it's read by David Lynch, and I could kind of hear his voice. I've heard him talk so much because of all the movies we've done and all the behind-the-scenes features, even if there's no commentaries. I loved his cadence. I loved his rhythm, even if he doesn't have a lot of emotion. It's, it's almost like he's seeing these words for the first time on a cue card when he's reading the book. I'd suggest getting it as an audiobook. I didn't listen to the whole thing because I just read the book, but I listened to the beginning, and I think it works better as him talking than him reading. I can believe that. I mean, I I definitely hear his voice when I'm flipping through the pages. It definitely reads as he speaks. And so I don't think you'd lose anything by hearing him actually deliver the wisdom. No, I mean, when I was reading, I chuckled about the suffocating rubber clown suit. But when you hear him actually talk about it on the audiobook, I found myself laughing out loud, even though I'd already read the story. So I'd say give this an audible go. And that ends this episode of Books and Nachos. But we will be back with more Twin Peaks. We've got the secret history of Twin Peaks to discuss. It's the new book by Mark Frost that's supposed to prepare us for the new season of Twin Peaks that's coming damn soon on Showtime. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to, to learn whatever I can. I like the idea, just like the access guide, that we're going to kind of get information in a very clinical way. Like, we're going to get clues to this new series, but it's not going to be spilling it all at once. It's all going to be coded in a history of a town. You've read it. I'm picking it up for the first time. I'm excited. Yep, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more Lynch, head to nowplayingpodcast.com with Inland Empire coming out. We have reviewed every movie of Lynch's. And if you go to nowpeakingpodcast.com, we have reviewed every episode of Twin Peaks as part of a spring donation series that supports Books and Nachos, Now Playing, Now Peaking, all the shows we do here. So thank you for listening. Until next time, please support independent podcasting and your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.